This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk, special one today, joined by John Baskin, who wrote a great book, and I think a book about Ohio State football that fills a very interesting need because it is comprehensive. And it takes you through the entire history of Ohio State football, John. But it does so, and the thing that I like about it most is it does it with, um, it's not just straightforward. It does it with insight and some opinion in there. And it doesn't just tell you what happened, but it tells you what it meant and why this was important. It's not just a recitation of dates and people. And there's a lot of synthesis in a book like this where, listen, people know Woody Hayes and people know the snow bowl and people know John Cooper, but when you synthesize it, when you put the information together, John, in the right way, you take things that people thought they knew and you tell them things that they actually don't know. And that's what I really love about this. The Lords of smash mouth, the unlikely rise of an American phenomenon by John Baskin. John, thanks so much for joining me here on Buckeye talk. Happy to be here. Um, that's sort of an amazing pricey. If I could have asked what somebody saw the book, it would have been exactly what you just said. Because when Michael O'Brien and I started working on it, what we wanted to do was identify the places where people thought they knew the sport at Ohio State, but maybe didn't. Because the history is so mythological by this point. Everyone knows the mythological uh, touch points. But I, I'm, John, this is my job, man. Like I do this, I've been doing this <laughs> for like 17 years, 18 years, whatever it is. And like, I learned stuff in this book. And so, and the thing that I also think is very interesting because this book starts at the beginning, but it takes the reader up through John Cooper, Jim Tressel, Urban Meyer, Ryan Day. And I always do like the idea of sort of like, very current things, very recent things being presented as history. It helps you in the moment that it's like, man, you're right. You know, hey, you have you have Ryan Day's first win against Michigan in here. You know, you have the arrival of Urban Meyer in the 2014 National Championship. You have all of these things in here that it, that it helps set um, even the modern history 
in the context of the larger history, because listen, man, you don't have to wait 50 years to write about Ryan Day and Urban Meyer and Jim Trestle. So it's it's very comprehensive. And I want to in a little bit, I want to get into like why you did this, how you did this, because it is like a it's like a, a thesis. This is like your your doctorate, you know, Ohio State football. But I what I, I have a couple things that really jumped out to me. And I, I can't wait to ask you this question. Because the chapter entitled A Cathedral for Football, it's about Ohio Stadium. John, we're coming up on the 100 year, 2022 will be, everyone will be celebrating 100 years of the uh, opening of Ohio Stadium. Is the building of Ohio Stadium the most important thing in the history of Ohio State football? Because I read this chapter and it, yeah, we know it's the house that Chick Harley built. Nah, people like football, whatever. But it made me think about Ohio Stadium in a different way. Is If you are listing the most important things, would that stadium and its creation be number one? Uh, maybe number two. Okay. Um, and and there, the, the two things are so related. The first thing is the most striking thing when you try to get back and, and this is a sort of a gift of the fact that so many of our guys here who cover the team weekly, they're so busy meeting their deadline that they rarely get time to drop back and do that kind of synthesis. Mm. So it, it leaves what I thought was it left some of that open, you know, to, to try. So what really happened, it wasn't the stadium. The astounding thing is, the buildup to the stadium, which must have started about 1908, um, it was an impossible plan. And, uh, Thomas French, who wanted, who set things in motion, but he, it, it was such an astounding notion that the university's athletic department wasn't sure at first and wanted to publicize it a lot. It was like, like I said, that be put under the aegis of the psychology department for doing something this bizarre that the stadium called for something that would hold a what was a quarter of the population of Columbus at the time. I mean, that's sort of an astounding notion from old Ohio feel. But the second notion that's so interesting to me is they did it with a cord. It wasn't just French. It was Mendenhall, the old trustee who wanted it built out of brick instead of cement. And it was, but a group of people moved with a cord together. And in a very short amount of time, 10 years, a decade or so, mm -hmm. it built and almost paid for. And then what happened was, it announced um, uh, it was a master plan that was never said to be a master plan. It's, it, it built this incredible facility, which influenced a lot of other stadia that were being built at the time. It was a forerunner. I think in, I don't know, in 1913, I think there were six of these in the country. So Ohio State interestingly was at the forefront of it and not, and it wasn't just a stadium. It was a beautiful building. Architecturally, mm -hmm. it was beautiful. Um, and it announced not just the intentions of football that put the establishment on notice. It announced the intentions 
for the prestige of the university itself. So there's a dual purpose. But what finally came out of it, and this was a problem that persisted in throughout a good part of the century, it created a sort of a dichotomy between academics and athletics, which I think has largely been subdued now. Um, but at the time, it got quite noisy and rancorous. Um, but in the 1920s, what happened was a, a coalescing of business interests with this, the emerging sport, which used to be a gentleman's game and the gentleman, the scholar, the athlete, um, that was sort of going by the wayside. And what you had was the marriage of commercial interest and athletics. And once again, Ohio State, unwittingly or not, was right at the forefront of this, as though they had laid out a master plan. And of course, all the way through, I believe this is true. You would know this. Backstop me on this. I think they today they have the winningest percentage in all of college Division One football. Uh, I think for, from like a certain period forward, yeah. I think maybe like the last hundred years. Maybe maybe overall not quite. I think, but yeah. But right there, right there, right there. Yes. Yeah. They never had. They never had troughs. They never did what Alabama did or Oklahoma or whatever. So it's in terms of the master plan. Look what. They did. So, yeah, the stadium was a manifestation of an, an idea, a notion that found a chord in the minds of probably fewer than a dozen people who brought that to fruition. It, Pretty it, amazing. It, it, it does. It, and, and I think, you know, Ohio State fans would know the lore of, hey, they have Chick Harley. Chick Harley is this incredible athlete. He's famous. They're watching him on this little field and like, man, they got a little stadium. This this thing's going to be popular. But what you laid out here to me is something that I, I then I I always assumed it was sort of like, hey, football was getting popular. So they had to build a stadium because people wanted to come see football. But the idea that they didn't build this stadium necessarily because of what was, but because of what they anticipated would be. Absolutely. Built- huge, yes. huge leap in that. Yes. Imagination, risk risk and see John Wilsey, who is one of my favorite all time uh, characters at Ohio state and and not much known at all these days. Um, But he had losing seasons into the twenties. They were, they were worried upstairs. Now, what, what are we going to, I'm going to put these people that, and why I say that the modern era of Ohio state football began with Francis Smith I think it was that was a really once again the master plan said take a chance. So they brought this maverick from the southwest that only people out there really knew much about, and he helped um, put people back in the stadium. Mm-hmm. Give us a paragraph in here. Um, it was the notion that French and the other decision makers had understood when most others had not. Build it and they will come. It was a magnificent gesture that put the national football establishment on notice. It said Ohio State would be a permanent challenger, a fixture. It announced to everyone the seriousness of its efforts. That idea that that this is Ohio State's program rose to the challenge of its stadium. Right? This listen, man, if you're gonna build this giant thing, you better be good and have people to reason, having people to you know coming out here. 
And it set Ohio State on a path. Again, you, you're referencing in here, you know, they're looking at Harvard. It's like, hey, Harvard's got a pretty good stadium, but it's all East Coast stuff. There weren't schools in the Midwest doing this yet. And Ohio State just said, we're going to do it. And I think, like, what if somebody at Purdue had said, you know what? Let's just build a 75,000 seat stadium in 1920. Let's see what happens. Maybe why wouldn't Purdue then be Ohio State? It's not guaranteed. It's not <laughs> written in 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 the football Bible. We know Ohio Ohioans care about football, but th- this gesture to me, the belief and the forward thinking idea. And it's funny you mentioned the idea of the coming together of commercial interests and athletics. It's like, oh man, I thought they just started doing that in the last ten years. They're doing that a hundred years ago, man. It, it's it's a fascinating idea that. Um, that this building that we that people still walk in. It's what you walk in when you go on a Saturday. You go to the shoe man. Yeah, they fixed it up. They built some stuff around it, but that's the same building. I I really like that that chapter, John. Like it's it's people matter, but man, buildings matter. Infrastructure um, matters. It does because as you uh, well point out, when people walk into that stadium, the architecture of that stadium gives them a sensibility of what happened 50 years before. The architecture alone, that's the great power of architecture. And it was the wisdom of the guys who went out and studied Harvard. Yale. they studied those buildings, uh, those magnificent stadiums. They only existed out there. Football only existed out there. I mean, there, there was Michigan, who was probably the power in the West at that time. It would beat Cornell along about 1913 or whatever. So it's kind of interesting to me that um, there's a point in there in which Michigan is trying to be Yale and Ohio State is trying to be Michigan. Oh, <laughs> and, wow. <laughs> um, and they had such a head start. You know, they were, I believe the university might have existed before the state did. But it's very old. They had a thousand students before Ohio State got its doors open. And it already had a, a relatively prominent um, program, particularly for the Western um, players. There wasn't anybody out here. Football was so Eastern. I believe when I was doing some of the research, I think there were still national Ivy League teams that might have been winning. Uh, or sharing in national titles mm-hmm. up to the, through World War II, you know, before that uh, dominant strain of, you know, Ivy League schools began to diminish some. So there was a Ohio State saying, we don't care. And yeah. they went out to get their coaches from there, but then very quickly they, they stopped even doing that. The early coaches were Easterners, but mm-hmm. not for long. There's a quote in here that I've, they imagine, again, as we celebrate the 100-year history of Ohio Stadium in 2022. The first game was played against Ohio Wesleyan, but the dedication game was played a couple weeks later against Michigan. Michigan wins 19-0 in the dedication game of Ohio Stadium. This is one of these quotes, John. I had, I had not heard this before. Well, I'm sure when you're researching this, sometimes you find things. It's like, did, a, did he really say that? It's too good. It's like, what are you saying? You know, it went for two because I couldn't go for three. But he probably said it. Fielding Yost, Michigan beats Ohio State. He says, yeah. we put the dead in dedication. Yeah. 
Yeah. Can you imagine if a coach said that today? That is an unbelievable mic drop by Fielding Yost, one of the most important people in Michigan football history, after they shut out Ohio State in yeah. the Ohio Stadium dedication. You guys must have gone crazy with that quote. Yeah, well, odd times. I mean, the day before the game, the college president was out with a broom trying to clean things up. You know, so it's an entirely different era. The era ended, I think the era ended with Woody. I think Woody was, I call him the last grand eccentric. Bear Bryant outlasted him a few years. But I, I think so many things changed with Woody. And unfortunately, um, Woody was never going to change with them. Yeah, You know, he's just, he was a man who was so totally out of his time. He wished that he had been born, say, at the time of the Civil War or just after the Civil War, sometime between there and the invention of flight. That would have been the perfect time for Woody. Um, and that was the world he saw. He grew up with the radio, you know, for instance, and in Newcomerston. And he never got away from that, that um, small town point of view. And there was not going to be anybody after him. And there hasn't been. And it's interesting. Woody is both the end of something and the beginning of something. Because I yes. always, you know, Woody is the beginning of modern Ohio State football. But he is also the end of a particular era of college football and uh, the, the men who ran that sport in that time. So uh, I do have a specific Woody question I want to ask you. But I want to do some Paul Brown stuff first. And we'll do that next on Buckeye Talk. Doug Maurice back with John Baskin, the author with Michael O'Brien of Lords of Smash Mouth, The Unlikely Rise of an American Phenomenon. So, John, before we get to the Paul Brown and Woody Hayes uh, particular chapters and, and questions I have for you, this, again, it is both uh, encyclopedic uh, but also entertaining. It is it is um, filled with knowledge but also filled with, with a, a take on things. Oh, it's thick, man. Man, this thing showed up in my mailbox. This is like this is not this book's not messing around. We're talking like three hundred and fifty plus pages here. It is an academic work in some regard. I mean, you look at the bibliography. You guys, I mean, you guys are researching this forever, and not everything is either worthy of that kind of uh, rigorousness in the research or would hold up. Under it, you know, you might get in and say, "Man, this thing's gonna be about eighty pages." There's not enough of a story to tell here. W what was it like? Did you know in your heart before you started that Ohio State football, a three hundred and fifty word volume of its history, its importance, its major moments, its major players, would hold up under what is really sort of a a research driven, academic, but also enlightening and and vivacious. Retelling. Were you sure this book would work? I'm still not sure. <laughs> um, it's because it, it requires a certain kind of an audience. And I don't know exactly what that audience is. We've done here. We've done what I think are some of the signal kinds of Ohio State books. Woody's Boys, I think, was mm -hmm. it was a bestseller by Alan Atali. The best sports book on Ohio State, I think, and probably I'm saying this because I was its editor, but David Hyde's book on 1968, the year that saved Ohio State football, we've, 
we've always been seriously minded. Bob Hunter's book on Chick Hurley. So we have a backlog, you know, of, of things. And they were always to a certain point. And I, I don't know that I intended for it to be encyclopedic. Once we started, we found that each of those segments had backgrounds and notions that hadn't particularly been explored or they hadn't been explored by, by what we see as a uh, basic fan. This isn't a basic fans book. Exactly. I don't, I don't know who it's for because at some point you start writing things for yourself and that may be not a good idea. Oh, I hope not. Everything in the world that I write, I write for myself. I don't care what anybody <laughs> else thinks. So I, th- I like that idea. The thing that I think, though, it's they're all they're just like m- not even mini essays. They're essays on the history. It's not the recitation of the history. It's the it's the it's the um, insight into the history. And I agree. Anyone who has not read David Hyde's book. Uh, 1968 and 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 it's all about that super soft class and again i think people know that moment where people in the mid 60s were starting to question woody hayes and then this one of the great uh classes in the history of college football comes in and then resets the rest of the woody era and again sort of restarts what ohio state football is that book by hyde that came out uh, a decade or so ago i remember when you guys did that and again this is orange fraser press it is a, a book imprint in Ohio that does great sports book like this. Just to be upfront, John and I had a dalliance. Uh, I was going to do a book about it, the Buckeyes in 2008 that once they lost 35-3 to USC, it was kind of like, well, that's not going to work anymore. So, um, but, but this, what you guys do at Orange Frazier is uh, you do it a particular way. And I even like the, uh, the, uh, the illustrations in this book. It's not a lot of times you wouldn't expect that in a book like this, but it's cool illustrations of Woody Hayes and Urban Meyer and Ryan Day. I love it. You remember Ralph Stedman who who, uh, did the drawings for Hunter Hmm. Thompson, Fear and Love Thing in Las Vegas? I sort of wanted to get completely away from anything anybody had seen and have these sort of squirrely caricatures of who these people are. So Todd Kale, who does a lot of gothic comic books and things like that, Help me with the illustrations. No, I think they're great. They are. They're a lot. There's like a reminiscent a bit of like some of the James Serber kind of things where it's like it's the quick wit of the of the words, but also some of the uh, artistic notions along with it that sort of bring the story to life. So you decided to do this. How long does this take? Since the concept, you mean? Yeah. You're sitting, you're in the shower. You're like, huh, maybe I'll write a book about Ohio State football. I'd seen all this material, had edited a great deal of it. Just finished at some point several years ago. We'd worked with Mark Ray on his book on legends. So we're picking up those kinds of pieces. So Michael Bryant's been a good friend of mine for a long time. He's an old semi-pro running back, history teacher, coach, and he's a very smart guy. And we said, all right, what would it be? We must have done this three and a half years ago did the outline, and then what happened with the outline was, all right, what's the story behind the outline? If you've got 20 chapters, all right, um, what what are the major elements? You know, that's when the master plan, we started thinking, okay, it, what this was, whether they labeled it or not, it was a magnificently um, executed master plan, whether they had it down or not. Then what else happened? Um, you began to see 
um, the Ohio football genius. <clears throat> you saw it with um, Schmidt, and you saw it with Sid Gilman, you saw it with Paul Brown, and you saw it with Tiger Ellison. And what happened? To come to its fruition, as so often happens with Ohioans, you got to leave Ohio to get it done. So the only way that, that Tiger Ellison could get those incredible concepts, uh, spread concepts onto the field was put in a book. We didn't want to see it. Although I believe on the national title of 68, the last couple of pass plays came out of Tiger Ellison's old gangster series that if you've got his old run and shoot book, you can see what the play is. And um, that was as close as he got. He had to leave. And then there was this period of five or six years, seven years, until finally somebody out on the West Coast, Mouse Davis, finds the book. And suddenly that whole offense then engenders uh, everything. It influenced the West Coast offense, which is kind of misnamed anyway, because Bill Walsh always said, first, Sid Gilman, meaning Ohio State, taught me everything that I knew. And he said, if I had had, um, if I hadn't had, if I had Greg Cook for a quarterback instead of Virgil Carter, I probably wouldn't be as nearly smart as people think I am. Meaning his offense was a horizontal offense. He thought the West Coast offense is what the West Coast guys were doing, and it was more horizontal. And that was where Sid Gilman came in. Whatever it was, those were all our product. And maybe, and that was why we got interested in doing something that gets almost surreal, sort of like Gabriel Marquez goes to Ohio State. What would happen if Paul Brown had stayed? There's absolutely no doubt in my mind. You can tell me, you know. That's, what you think would have happened. I got that chapter. I got that paragraph pulled up right here because that's where I want to go next with Paul Brown. What you're talking about, though, again, just this, if you guys don't, people know the name Sid Gilman. I think they maybe don't know Tiger Ellison as much, but it's a little bit like the Wright brothers, John, right? It, the brain power is yeah. from Ohio, but then to launch the plane, they had to go to a cliff in North Carolina. So North Carolina's like, hey, flight was invented here. It's like, listen, man, it was two Ohio guys who just needed a place to jump off of. West Coast offense, it's Ohio brain power. Absolutely. It's like it, it got it got sure. instituted somewhere else. So it really should be called the Ohio offense. So Ohio thinks it up and then exports it somewhere else, and then they get to put their name on it. So you know, anyway. Gilman was a Gilman applied for Woody's job. I mean, you I, know this. That's the other yeah. one I want to go to. So those are the next two things that I really want to hit because it's again these pivot points. Man, we all that's the best part about history. You My favorite that. thing is what is what if like well what if and and you can find some here. One is this Paul Brown idea, and I'll read this paragraph of your own words back to you. The final analysis is that Paul Brown would have irrevocably altered Ohio State football. He would have recruited versatile quarterbacks, developed trend-setting offenses, and changed how college football was played. He'd have won more championships too. But even though he said his first two years at Ohio State were the happiest of his life, it's difficult to imagine him as a permanent college fixture. The college program was more difficult to control and his methods seemed best suited for the professional game. So people know Paul Brown was here. The war happens. He goes off. He ends up coming when he comes back from the war. Then he's hired to be the head coach of the Cleveland Browns. And then he goes on to the Bengals. And we know the Paul Brown story. But this pivot point, again, we all know that, John. We all know that. Paul Brown at Ohio State. 
Of course, we all know that. I had not gone down the road of, well, what if Paul Brown had just stayed here? And it's not Woody Hayes, who's the father of modern Ohio State football. It's Paul Brown. And this idea that that Paul Brown version, that Ohio State winds up with for 28 years with Woody Hayes, three yards in a cloud of dust, that's not what Paul Brown would have done. The, the entire reputation, the entire perception and style of Ohio State football Paul Brown was here, real-life events and the creation of professional football on a larger stage intervene, but I love that paragraph, John. I love presenting the facts about Paul Brown and then espousing the theory of the way Paul Brown would have changed Ohio State football had he been here for two decades. You know who helped me with that? Mike. Mike Brown. I read it all. He helped us with Woody's voice. So I wrote Mike and said, have some questions. What do you think? So Mike helped us sort of form what. Good source. Good source. Always great source. You know, so, of course, it's a good thing I got him when I did because he's, I'm sure his phone's really busy these days. Yeah. He's too busy hanging out with Joe Burrow. He doesn't have time to answer book questions. (laughs) Yeah. But but did you again, John, like that's in your head as you're writing this or is it as you are then researching Paul Brown and reading the old stories and talking to people? You, this idea crystallizes in your head about the what if of if Paul Brown had stayed here longer. Once we got this notion of doing sort of the basic outline that almost anyone would have done on what are the signal moments at Ohio State, then we turned it upside down. So. Once we saw and did the reading, and we read everything. Matter of fact, let me show you how the how the reading went. Can you see this? You know what this is? Yes, I see it. See? Yes, it's Thomas French's engineering manual. Oh it sold all the way through the century. It was went through thirty printings. We also have this. You know, this is Wilsey's. Uh, oh my gosh! Um, so. We read open up, John. You can open up a museum now that the book is out. You can let people come pay five bucks to come through. Yeah, somebody call me. I have a library for you. (laughs) Then, of course, um, and this this was came from Michael O'Brien. We found that there were a lot of academic guys, including Michael Oriand, who is a pro football player. I think he played at Kansas City, became an academic literature guy. And those guys, especially guys like Oriand, um, this was one of his best known of his books. These guys, they were university press books. Um, you want to talk about dense and thick, but they were filled with ideas. So what they did was they helped spur us, you know, underneath to ask those questions. Say, and football is filled with those questions. It's what every tavern is, the conversation mm-hmm. every tavern is made up of every weekend. It's like, what would have happened if this or that? So, we began to ask, we asked that, uh, why was the genius exported? Um, why was there this brain drain? What happened? What is about the lost dynasty? Can you call it that? Can you make a case for that? Um, how good a coach was Woody? How many titles, national titles did he live on the ground? We say three. <laughs> and, um, Everywhere we went, we're turning the material, we're reading everything we can find, um, and then we're turning it upside down to look at it in another way. And that's life advice. And that was the fun of it. 
gather all the information from all the experts and then turn it upside down. I, I love that idea of it. And that's why, again, we, we, we know the story of, of Paul Brown. We know that he was Ohio State's head coach for three years from 1941 to 1943. They won the national title in 1942. Then he's off to coach uh, Great Lakes Navy base for two years. And then, again, here we go to the Browns. He winds up coaching football until 1975. And imagine, imagine if that had been at Ohio State. If that's imagine. that. Is, here, here's the one salient point. Imagine him coaching Paul Warfield, greatest receiver of all times. My, my, uh, my research indicates that Paul Warfield made the All-Big Ten team essentially as a defensive back. He was a running back, but his talents as a, as a, a deep back. Can you imagine, like, you've got a guy like that who transformed the professional scene I don't think Paul Brown would have missed that. Mike doesn't either. Right. No, well, how you didn't miss it the when it when it got to the pros. So yeah, no, I, I it it's uh it's a fascinating idea to think about that Paul Brown is one of the, oh, I don't know, one of the ten most important people in, in the history of football uh, in this country. But but his Ohio State career is a footnote. For three years, it's it's a national title, but it really is a footnote. Sure. And to think about what might have been, but I think again to your point, we're doing it with Ryan Day right now, right? We're doing do, do it with Jim Harbaugh. It's like, hey, you guys are really good in college, but do you want to go to the NFL? I do think with Paul Brown, with what an innovator he was, I think the point you make that uh, you weren't going to get thirty, you weren't going to get twenty-eight years like you got out of Woody, out of Paul Brown at the college level, because the draw eventually would have been too strong. But there's certainly a world where you could have gotten maybe a decade instead of three years, right? If things yeah. go a little bit differently and a decade of Paul Brown at Ohio state would have potentially reshaped what Ohio state football was all about for the decades to come, because we're just getting to a passing era now with Ryan day, where again, you know, JT Barrett was breaking all these Ohio state passing records in 2017. And it's like, well, you know, he's like a hundredth in the nation in passing, but at Ohio state, he's, a, he's thrown more than anybody has ever thrown because Woody Hayes established a way of playing here that that's not what they did. And Paul Brown would have been, sure. would have done and that Paul, differently. Paul would not have done that. I mean, many people think that, for instance, Paul invented the flanker position, but he understood passing. Um, a lot of people think that Gilman's success, and he's probably a footnote out here. People don't really know who Gilman is anymore, but uh, <laughs> one of the writers said presciently about uh, Sid Gilman, he um, he put feathers on the ball, which was an expression oh, I love it. like because of his, his passing. But his passing came from, if he had only listened to Francis Schmidt, he wouldn't have had the organization. So he got the sort of notion of chaos that you could create and creativity, but Paul Brown taught him efficiency. And so when you put those two things together, you had how great Gilman became on the West Coast with his offenses. And again, it took those Ohio sources to do that. So then let's get into Sid Gilman and the role he plays in Woody Hayes becoming the head coach at Ohio State, which again, I had not ever known it like this. I had not thought of it like this. This idea, people know the snowball, right? We know the snowball at Ohio State. But you are creating the world in which Woody Hayes eventually becomes the head coach at Ohio State. And uh, on page 76, 77 of the book, you get, you get to this. Now, here's the rest of the story, which took place that same weekend in the same blizzard 
120 miles to the southwest. There, another even older rivalry was being played, one between the University of Cincinnati and Miami. They'd begun theirs in 1888, two years before the Buckeyes even had a team, and nearly a decade before they played Michigan for the first time. So this rivalry in this moment is Cincinnati head coach Sid Gilman and Miami head coach Woody Hayes. And this Ohio State job is getting ready to come open, and in this snowstorm, Miami beats Cincinnati, right? Yes. And it is that win that possibly helps propel Woody Hayes to the Ohio State job where if there hadn't been a snowstorm and Cincinnati would have won because then Miami goes to the salad bowl. They go out. That's actually a real bowl. They go out. They win that game. It sort of creates this whole end of the season at Miami that gives Woody a boost. If Cincinnati wins that game, maybe Sid Gilman gets the same kind of boost and maybe Sid Gilman becomes the head coach at Ohio State. Because as you lay out, I think people do know a little bit about this. The Columbus, uh, there was a, a like a survey, the Columbus Quarterback Club, or the Columbus Dispatch, they were saying, who should be the next Ohio State head coach? Woody's name appeared in Agate. Paul Brown seemed to be everybody's candidate, but from where Brown stood, Ohio State might have been a demotion. Missouri coach Don Farrow was offered the job, accepted it, then changed his mind. Sid Gilman's family said he'd been offered the job, accepted it, then lost it because he was Jewish. In a Columbus Citizen Reader's poll, Woody finished behind Lassie, the actress Lana Turner, President Harry Truman, and an unnamed inmate in the Ohio Penitentiary. There was not unanimous approval of Woody Hayes when he was seeking this job. Do That idea, one game, one blizzard, one, we're in a blizzard right now as we record this. One blizzard helps Ohio State hire Woody Hayes instead of Sid Gilman. If it was sunny that day, do you think Sid Gilman would have wound up as Ohio State's head coach? Hard to say what kind of prejudice. Gilman was a tough guy to get along with. <clears throat> and he was Jewish. I don't know what the incident of anti-Semitism was in the trade at that time. Maybe it took the West Coast to not care. Um, hard to say. Um, I certainly think they would have, they were more comfortable looking at someone like Woody Hayes, even though they didn't know much about him. And the real power behind that to me was um, Boxcar Bailey. That was the guy that won that game in the snow. And that was what sent uh, Woody to Ohio State as much as anything, I think. It was an odd set of circumstances, don't you think? I mean, it's it's amazing. One blizzard affects this, the the next fifty years of Ohio State football in such a significant way. Cincinnati that year winds up eight and four. It's Sid Gilman's second year at Cincinnati in 1950. Uh, it's Woody Hayes' second year at Miami. Miami winds up going nine and one. They win the Salad Bowl, and in 1951, he's Ohio State's head coach. Sid Gilman goes on. He has uh, four more years at Cincinnati, and then he's off to the AFL, and then and then like away we go again. He's helps found sort of uh, again the the explosion of the passing game and then the style of football that we see right now. Um, that idea, John, again, and there's so much. The the thing that I like about this book is, that of course, there's some Woody because how, how do you write an Ohio State book and not have Woody in it? You have to because he's old and he's new. He's he's ancient and he's modern. He's everything. He's the beginning and the end. You have to have Woody in here. But as you said, David Hyde's book, 
that book about 1968, that dives in so clearly into that season, which again is probably the most important season in Ohio State history. But it's a snapshot in some ways. It's a really deep, colorful snapshot, but it's it's really about that moment in time with Woody Hayes. This has Woody, but it has before Woody, it has after Woody. It's not only Woody, but there's some good, healthy Woody in here. In in, in researching this book, did you what, what was your relationship to Woody Hayes as you spend time researching the, the history and writing the history of Ohio State football? When I first came to Ohio, I was hired as a special assignments writer by the Dayton Daily News. I got here from the Carolinas just as they won the Supersofts, won the national title. When I walked into the Dayton Daily News offices, it must have been late January or February. Woody was all they wanted to talk about. I had no idea who he was. I mean, we sort of vaguely knew the name. We knew we didn't have the monolithic structure that you have in Ohio. We had a lot of teams. We had the ACC teams. We had all kinds of teams, and we didn't. Um, there was not a preeminent one. Frank Howard might have been. He was sort of the Woody Hayes of his time. And so Frank Howard was the person that I was always most interested in because, first, he lived next door to my aunt who taught at Clemson. So occasionally I would get to speak to him. And also because he was so colorful. He was such an eccentric guy. And he was a little more gentle than Woody was. But they were both of those, that grand set of eccentrics that came out of the middle part of the century that we can't have, won't have anymore. So um, I felt like, God, if you're going to stay in Ohio, you better know who this guy is and you better know what that's about. I mean, I thought at one time, what is he, the chancellor? I mean, no, no, he's He's the coach. So you've got to know this. So I started, the office, of course, was filled with Ohio State graduates, uh, including a friend of mine who was, whose most famous moment was being a drum major for the band. And he was most proud of, of getting yelled at over the PA system during practice for doing a back bend while the band played A Mighty Fortress is Our God. So... The guys there started beginning to fill me in on who, what he was. I never really became a real fan of Ohio State, but you cannot escape the influence of Ohio State. No matter where you are here, it's always on, at the forefront of someone's conversation. And I think that trying to understand why is this as important as it is and what really happened because – it's very unlikely. It was certainly unlikely at the time when football was essentially an East Coast game that that, that happened and it grew and it became to be probably the, if you count everything from finances uh, to crowds um, to wins, it's probably the preeminent program in the country. And... That's where I want to end our conversation, John. We'll do that next on Buckeye Talk. Doug Maurice back with John Baskin, the author of Lords of Smash Mouth, The Unlikely Rise of an American Phenomenon. Where, where's the best place, John, to get to get it? Just your local bookstore, order it online? Just Probably Amazon. It. You can come to Orange Treasure 
Amazon, Amazon has a great, they let you into it so you can actually read part of the book. Uh, so they have a pricey of it. So Amazon's a good place. Come to Orange well, They don't need to write it. I, I write it for them. Go buy it. You don't need to write it before <laughs> they buy it, everybody. Just go Just go buy the book. If you listen to this podcast, I, I guarantee it. If you listen to this podcast, you'll like the book. Because why would you? Uh, why would you be listening to this podcast if you didn't care about Ohio State football? It, it's a good. You put it on your bookshelf, and I like it like this. It's it's thorough and it's deep, but it's bite sized chapters that you can read. You can go. I'm just going to read about, and it's historical. This happened, then this happened, then this happened with the synthesis. But then there are little things in it, like what happened to the fullback in the history of Ohio State. That it's not just year by year by year. There's 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 idea chapters inserted within sort of the march of time. So, John, we did a series at Cleveland.com a couple of years ago about how Ohio State football was the most indestructible program in college football and among the most indestructible sporting teams in North America. Because when you look at it again, you can talk about Michigan or Alabama or Texas or USC or Florida State, and you can find dips. You can find dips where Always. as good as good as they are, as much as people care, as big as the stadium is, as deep-pocketed as the donors are, as great as the local high school talent is, there are dips. And Ohio State, you know, end of Cooper is the closest thing to a dip. Even, you know, the Trestle one-year transition with Luke Fickle, that's a one-year thing. There is not a sustained era of real problem football for half a century here. And again, your book takes us up through the modern day, up through Ryan Day. Are they set, John? They built a stadium 100 years ago and thought, if we build it, they will come. And for 100 years, they've been coming. And for 100 years, Ohio State has been winning. Does it ever change? Or is the, or is John the next John Baskin, 50 years from now, going to write the next version of this book, and it's going to be a continuation of the same. I think it, that football is going to change dramatically in the next decade. We're going to have a, a longer playoff season. I think it seems to be that there's some motion. You would know this much better than I, but it seems that there's some motion toward not exactly a super conference, but what we see is there are 25 or 30 teams that dominate Division One. Occasionally, Cincinnati sneaks in, something like that, as an outlier, maybe. Whether they remain, it's going to be – it's hard to tell. But what you have is you have a huge imbalance, and everyone's aspiring to be in a place that they probably can't get to. Um, there are still the old academic cries, you know, of factory. It's mostly muted because the academic side at Ohio State has gotten so large itself. It's so prominent and so many good things are happening over there. But I don't see, I see something happening in which we have a different alignment of power football. And the thing that holds true right here at the moment that everybody sees is this is a, they built a cathedral to football in the state that at that time was, was, was the birthplace of football. Ohio is the home of football, but it's not, the place for football anymore. Not right now. It's still great, but it is such a Southern dominated sport at the moment with the, where the best players are, where the most, the greater um, depth of passionate fandom is the greater variety 
of universities and football programs who are as, are as dedicated to it as Ohio State. That's not in the Midwest anymore. We all know that that's in the South. And that Ohio State may stand not as a lone bastion, but, you know, Ohio State at the front with Notre Dame and Michigan and Penn State kind of right behind them, but battling this Southern dominance of football. And that will be an emerging story. Look, yeah. look at their recruitment. You can tell. They're, they don't stay at home as much as they used to. No, no. We just were talking to new players, you know, the new recruits recently, and it says here's a here's a cornerback from Florida, and here's a cornerback from Louisiana, and they had another cornerback from Texas that left, and here's a receiver from from Florida. You know, they're they're from all over the place. John, when you're researching a book like this, did you did, were you surprised? How often were you surprised? Or again, you, as you said, you 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 came to Ohio and you came to Ohio State football when you started at the Dayton Daily News. Um, how much did you did the book end up being what you sort of expected it to be, and how much were you surprised by what the final product wound up being for you? There was a certain kind of surprise in that, um, again, the speed with which daily journalists and and sports guys have to work. You miss a lot of the scenery. There's just not time for it, and also it's more difficult getting to people. You know, I don't know what it's like for you, for instance, with getting access. Um, and access probably means uh, different things because when I briefly covered football for the Wilmington paper when I was trying to write my first book, um, the, the coach was so happy to see anyone write about Wilmington College that I had total access I worked out with the team. I traveled with the team. I sat in on team meetings. He never censored. It was Bill Ramsire, good guy, just died last year, and just left it completely open to me. I don't know that people have that kind of access anymore, but the surprising thing was is all the nuggets and scenes and anecdotes and vibrancy that's buried in the material. And that was sort of a surprise because – you know, being an old feature writer, you're you're looking for that kind of material. I I think about that occasionally. I write much less than I used to. I say a lot of my stuff that I think and the behind the scenes and the the scenery I spout here into this microphone, and that's harder to document for history. Sometimes I think like, man, I probably maybe I should have written that down somewhere. Um, but the nature the nature of the business has changed. But I do think some of this stuff again, it's it's great. It's a reminder of how important football was to 100 years ago, 80 years ago, 60 years ago. We know it, but the, there is a lot of vibrancy to the way people viewed the sport back then and its place in society. And that, that architect guy who you have his design book, the engineer dude who figured out, nope, you got a, you had the one guy in here that's like ah thirty five thousand that's big enough for the stadium. They're like no 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 no. Yeah. Let's make this build seventy five and see what happens. And what happened was it helped birth one of the preeminent uh, sporting uh, outlets in America. I started this off by saying is building Ohio Stadium the number one thing that ever happened to birth Ohio State football the most important thing. You said no, it's number two. What's number one then? Well. Maybe it is if you count the concept, the notion of it, the guys thinking and okay. spending a decade thinking it into place. You might consider that the same thing. Okay, but I would. But say, you got to think it, then you got to do it, and they did both. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and they had wonderful timing 
because just as they built that in the early 20s, look what was happening. New paved roads, roads all over Ohio, Columbus at the center of that. Um, it was the roaring 20s. People were excited. They were glad to get away from the restraints of the Victorian era. They wanted new entertainment. Downtown in Columbus, the theaters, were the big theaters were beginning to be built. And that's when you started having this uh, coalescing of sports and entertainment. But you also had a way for people to get to Columbus. And they had a little more um, accessible income. So the culture, these guys are right in sync with what the culture was doing. All right, everybody, you're going to be hearing about all this this fall when it's the 100-year anniversary of Ohio State. And, John, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to open up that chapter in the Lords of Smash Mouth. And just read the chapter about Ohio Stadium rather than do any research for. The- so I'll just have a podcast where I just read that chapter out loud. That way, I don't have to look up the same stuff you already looked up. What's the point? There's not. Why would I duplicate your work when you did it for us? Good man. Um, I I can't recommend it enough. I just the, the illustrations around it. Just I'm just flipping through and they tell the story. But I love the titles of the chapters. I, I love the way that you can sit down and learn about a chunk of Ohio State history, but with a viewpoint with some thought behind it, with taking what was written and what was known from then and applying it through sort of like the worldview that we have now and the things, the the way we understand things and not just what happened, but what it meant. John Baskin, the Lords of Smash Mouth. If you guys listen to Buckeye Talk, go out and buy this book. John, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us. Great to be here. Thank you, Doug. So thanks, John Baskin, for that. We'll be back Friday with some more rapid fire Nathan and Stephen will be here next week. Look for a reset of the podcast uh, we did last July about, will the 2023 Ohio State football team would be the greatest team in college football history? We're going to revisit that idea. What changed? What's the same from when we first broached that subject? Monday, look for a wrap-up of Ohio State's basketball weekend and of the Super Bowl a little bit, especially some Buckeyes do stuff. For now, thanks again to John Baskin. I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk. Buckeye Talk.